Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview healthcare leaders about their lives and careers. Today, I'm fortunate to have executives from two companies that I admire to talk about real-world evidence. Jenny Christian is VP and General Manager, Medical and Scientific Services within the U.S. real-world business at IQVIA. And Alyssa Winsler-Cotton is SVP of Strategy, Research, and Medicines at SIAPS. Makes my title of president just, you know, it's just so short and compact. <laughs> so if you like this episode, I really hope that you're going to subscribe and ask your friends to do the same. Jennifer and Alyssa, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we're going to talk all about real-world evidence uh, today, but I want to first just get your backgrounds uh, individually. You're not identical twins, didn't grow up together, so we'll do that part separately. Jenny, I wonder if you could start and just um, just talk about your, your sort of your upbringing, education, sort of how you got to where you are. Sure, thanks, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, and. Um, you know, I guess I was motivated by my dad, who was a physician, and mom, a stay-at-home mom, who um, both were working very hard um, and and influencing me in the direction of medicine. Um, so um, when I went to UNC Chapel Hill, I, um, you know, I wasn't sure if medicine was the right fit or not, but I was starting to ask questions like, you know, I wonder how this um, medicine or you know, Benadryl works in our body. Like what is actually happening? And, yeah. and a friend said, well, you know, you should go to pharmacy school. So, um, so I, I, sure enough, I, I went to pharmacy school and was enjoying learning and making different medicines. But while I was um, on rotations during school, I started collecting information, you know, like um, the hospital wanted to know how well the surgeons were doing with applying um, antibiotics before surgery. So each morning I would go down and, and figure out the time in which an antibiotic was given for which patient. Was it before, during, or after? And I started asking myself, I wonder how other hospitals are doing this or how does this hospital compare to that one? And um, so someone said, well, you know, you should go study epidemiology and yeah. um, you should, you know, learn some of the research methods. So, um, so I looked into it and started a, a fellowship and at the same time doing a master's in public health and, um, and that was a great combination to start um, understanding the medicines we're using, but also how to assess it in a larger population or healthcare setting. And then I was getting ready to get married, and my husband was going off, you know, to um, Brown University in Rhode Island, and so we went up there, and I I started a fellowship there in pharmacoepidemiology and realized, you know, I, I don't have quite enough skills to be able to do my own studies. And, you know, I got kind of a broad overview with the, with the master's program, but um, so I enrolled and started in a PhD in epi 
uh, at Brown, while also being a pharmacist in the clinical settings um, in, in, um, at Kent Hospital, which was a local community hospital yeah. and stuff. So it was um, combining those um, experiences that were um, the kind of then led me to, to want, you know, the last part was that it took two years to get, you know, your dissertation completed. And by the time you do all this work and three, you know, you have three publications out of it, I felt like the work was, was not really being used by anyone, yeah. you know, and I really wanted to see my research making a difference or changing a decision. So um, I, I wanted to go into industry after that and then join GSK, a large pharma, where, you know, I got to see, do a number of studies, not just these three in two years, but now, you know, 40 or so in one year and use the information to, to inform, you know, everyday business decisions, as well as um, improving our understanding of effectiveness and safety of medicines. So that's how I got started. Great. That's a great story, Jenny. I like it how you said, you know, some, someone told me to, to, to go to pharmacy school. Someone told me to get, uh, you know, epi degree. My husband was going to Brown. You know, it sounds like it sounds like either you had really good people advising you or you were able to weed out any sort of bad suggestions because I don't want to know what else people told you to do. But the, those, the, what they did tell you seems like a good, a good path, at least the stuff you followed. Yeah, it's good to surround yourself by good mentors and people and, and sure, you, you have to figure out what works, what, what'll work best for you. That's good. So Alyssa, how about your story? Is it a similar kind of parallel path to Jenny or something different? Definitely a, uh, I would say the theme of kind of figuring out as you go is, is definitely part of it. Um, I think that's, you know, just as an aside, I think, uh, I very much, when I was graduating from college, was like felt like I needed to know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And as you kind of go through, you realize, oh, well, I can pivot here and I can pivot there once I kind of learn more about myself and, and, and what I actually really enjoy. Um, but the actual path was very different. So for me, uh, I always loved science. Um, I was a biochemistry major in college um, and kind of just really enjoyed, um, you know, I was in lab and, and I enjoyed kind of the doing of the science. Didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, um, but it seemed like in my fields, um, you know, a PhD was valuable regardless of whether you wanted to be in business or, or uh, academia. Uh, so I went off and I did my PhD in uh, molecular biology, um, development, development of biology at Stanford. Um, and, um, you know, really, it, it was, I really enjoyed a lot of aspects of it. I enjoyed kind of the, the problem solving, the intellectual, intellectual problem solving side of it. Um, and I actually enjoyed doing the research, um, but, and I always wanted to do something that was very kind of, um, well, interesting also had potential impact on people's health, right? That is always important to me to kind of feel like there was a broader kind of um, impact of what I was doing. But then what I realized was for me, um, the, the, I wasn't feeling that impact on my day-to-day -day basis as much as I wanted. Um, a lot of people were able to kind of still hold on to that, but for me, I was working on the molecular mechanisms underlying paralysis. Um, so theoretically, in an elevator pitch, it felt great. Um, yeah. But over, on a daily basis, it just didn't connect to me. I was feeling I was tutoring on the side, and I felt more meaning from the tutoring that I was doing than I did from my research. Um, and so when I finished my PhD, I was really looking for something where I could, you know, take the problem-solving side that I loved. You know, sitting around in lab meeting, figuring out kind of what experiments we could do to address various topics. 
but combine it with something that was more working in teams, working with people, as opposed to kind of having your own project that you had to have first authorship on. Um, and then also working on things that were maybe a little bit less lofty, but more impactful kind of feeling to me. Um, so from there, I moved to consulting. I, was, I worked for McKinsey for five and a half years and management consultant. Um, and really, um, you know, I knew I wanted to stay in healthcare. I love healthcare. And so I was in the healthcare practice exclusively, mostly working with large healthcare systems, a little bit of pharma, a little bit of payer. Um, and there it was really, you know, I, I found what I was looking for across those different axes and learned a ton about, you know, business. The first time I said revenue, I laughed, right? Because yeah. it was just such a different world. Um, but I found that there were a lot of, well, you know, I think in science, we tend to think of ourselves as being, you know, what we have learned. It's really kind of, you learn transferable skills. And so um, I found those, the ability to translate those skills into consulting. Um, and, you know, so I enjoyed that. I was there for five and a half years. Um, and Alyssa, when you, when you first said revenue, was it like in a client meeting and you started to, to laugh hilariously when uh, you said <laughs> no, you got revenues no, going up? Far before then. So okay. they... So to get into consulting, um, you have to do these case interviews, right? Yeah. And so you have to kind of, they give you a problem like, okay, if you're thinking about, if you have a business and you're thinking about going to this new business, what would you think about? Um, and so you do a case study. And so the way to practice case studies is to just practice them and do them. Um, and and it's incredibly awkward at first and you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and then you read the answer in the book. You're like, how could anybody think of this? Yeah. Um, and uh and so that's what I, that's what I was laughing. Okay. Um, but, you know, you kind of train yourself on the basics. Um, so it's, but it's, you know, I think of it as, you know, it's, it's very structured problem solving, right? Just the same way that science is. Science, you take kind of a series of, you're trying to solve a big nebulous problem. You break it down to a series of, of uh, kind of questions you can address and things you can do to address them. Same thing with when consult consulting, you just have different pieces, different pieces of the puzzle that you're playing with. Um, so anyway. Uh, I'm digressing no, a little. Sounds bit. good. I used to I used to give those interviews. I I did have people laugh, and usually we had a certain. Now I'm a Harvard MBA. We had a certain like classification. Okay, that's a real smart person. She didn't go to Harvard Business School. She probably knows something. This maybe is funny. Let me see if I can understand why. Uh, it's <laughs> a special insight there. You know, it's not just something we learned in business school. So I'm glad you made it into McKinsey. Yeah. No. It was uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, and I learned, I learned a ton. Um, but what I realized, um, as I was kind of getting ready to leave was I had spent a ton of time working with health systems using data that they kind of exported and gave to us and then transforming that in a few, in different ways to help them with their strategy, right. To help them with operations, to figure out, you know, how do we improve flow through the ER or how do we think about strategy in terms of how do we drive volume, uh, within the health system, uh, things like that. Um, and things that felt simple to me from a data perspective were actually incredibly powerful and they weren't, they weren't clinical. They were just, you know, um, business operations questions. And so I wanted to find something in which I was helping them use their clinical data to be able to actually improve patient care. Um, and so that's how I got into real evidence. Um, and so I've been at PsyOps for, um, over five and a half years now, um, and, uh, leading the strategy function and really kind of helping um, take the company from, from, you know, kind of an early days company and that had data to really being a real evidence company. Well, both of your companies, and I know you didn't name them, so I'm going to make fun of them for a minute. So, you know, when I hear first year Psyaps, I could laugh at that. It sounds like, is it like Cymaps, <laughs> Synapse, or is it Cyclops, or what is it? And I, Iquivia, I think you pronounce it Iquivia, but I hear a lot of Iquivia. And I wonder if like people are quivering because of all the insights you're producing or where that, where that comes from. So... <laughs> But yes, the name Ikuvia kind of came about because it was really this 
uh, merger between IMS and quintiles, so IQ. And as you know, quintiles is a, a large clinical research organization known for running big clinical trials as well as prospective clinical studies. And then IMS uh, Health was known for um, data sources and expertise from around the world. And so combining those IQ into a number of different ways or VIA. Um, And so, you know, IQVIA is really a global service provider for um, you know, research, analytics, and technology now. So it's but exciting. But I'm thinking from the quintile standpoint, I'm going to say, I want to preserve that. So that's why I say my IQVIA, like quintiles, right? But um, if I don't see it that way, then it's IQVIA, which is how I think of pronouncing it. But maybe there's no right way to, to pronounce it. I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of wrong ways to say it. But <laughs> coming back to you know, both of your backgrounds, what I would say is that I think this is uh, not un- uncommon for people that are taking up, you know, PhD route. You get uh, a lot of like, deep knowledge, insights within your specialty area. And then you say, but what is it, you know, what is it achieving kind of in the, in the real world? So, um, you know, real world evidence in both cases sounds like it would be a great thing to do. And it sounds really pretty clear, you know, working in the real world, but like, what is real world evidence? I mean, what is that really? And why did it emerge in the, in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Who do you want to take that? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's what um, I want to, I want to say, like, well, who's the, who's the more real of the real? I think it's, it's, one of those, you know, it's like strategic. Who's going to say, so we don't have to have everybody answer each, each thing, but yeah. sort of where does it like, what does it really uh, mean? So I'll, I'll, maybe I'll say one of you can take, what is it and why? And another one, I want to know, like, what are some of the varieties? Cause it's not just, you know, it's not just one thing. All right. I'll start. Um, so rebel evidence is really, it's really just the documentation of how patients are being treated today, right? So who, what's ha- what, what their diagnoses are, what testing they have, what what treatments they're given, and and what their outcomes are, um, you know. And it's and it's not in that form when you get it out in the first place, right? It's it's just in the medical record, or it might be abstracted a layer to get into something like claims. Um, but fundamentally, it's it's all deriving from. Uh, the record of how patients are being treated every day. So it sounds very trendy, but really it's just yeah. the documentation of of the patient journey um, and what's actually happening in the real world. Um, and then there's a variety of forms that it can kind of be extracted from um, to be able to get you to a state where it can actually be analyzed and, and make some sense out of it. So Jenny, is it just a more sort of formalized version of what you were doing going around and seeing when the antibiotic was given and, and that kind of thing? Is it, is it just a natural extension from there? Was that real world evidence? Yeah, well, so it comes from real world data and there's so many different types. In fact, you know, at IQVIA, we have over a billion patient records um, that are coming from either adjudicated insurance claims or um, open source like hospital records um, or any uh, pharmacy and medical claims. And then there's EMR records uh, there's there's lab and biomarker and genetic data. Um, and so the real world evidence is really um, analyzing and generating insights from any of those um, real world data sources. Yeah. So as things have moved from paper to electronic, it's easier to kind of get access uh, to data at larger at larger scale. And it leads to all sorts of new uh, possibilities. 
what are the key questions that people are are asking today that uh, real world data might help to uh, to answer? And um, who is doing the the asking other th- other than me sitting here on this podcast? Gosh, there's a variety of questions. You know, our our team covers um, health economic modeling. So, um, you know, as you're generating evidence for for payers or for HTA bodies. Um, you know, what is the value story? How cost effective is it? Um, we have an HOR team generating, you know, uh, clinical effectiveness and comparative effectiveness to other medicines that are out there. Should, you know, how well does this medicine work compared to others that um, are available to me? Um, and then our, our epidemiology and drug safety teams are often um, mandated to follow the safety of medicines by regulators. So FDA, um, you know, often has post-approval safety studies. Once the medicine's approved and out there being used, how safe is it? Um, and and then we have um, uh, primary data collection teams going, you know, uh, running surveys for for patients or providers or understanding even once this new medicine is available at the site, who, how are they providing it? Um, what kind of resources does it take? So we do these time and motion studies to what kind of training might be needed, you know, since it's a new infusion, how much time will it take and those kinds of things. So there's a lot, a lot of different ways, yeah. um, you know, that you can understand answer these questions. And I guess, Jenny, as IQV is so broad and you have access to so many data sets that this could be any sort of an unfair question I'm asking you because it's sort of a whole variety of people might be asking you things about all, all kinds of areas. And Alyssa, maybe in contrast, SIAPS is a little more focused. So I wonder, I'm sure all the, all the things that Jenny mentioned are examples of things that you would know about, but what are the, what are the ones that sort of find their way into, into your world? What are the kind of questions and being asked and who's, who's asking those questions? Uh, so SIOPS is, is currently focused uh, on oncology, and, and we have very deep uh, oncology data with kind of paired with the, both molecular and clinical data combined. Um, and so the questions that we, um, I would say everything that Jenny mentioned is relevant. I think the uh, there's really kind of a, a whole set of questions when it comes to developing new evidence, right? So um, figuring out how you develop evidence for efficacy and safety, that's that's all kind of the same. Um, we also, um, within, within that, I think, um, it's just, it's different flavors of the same question. So I wouldn't exclude any of the types of questions that Jenny included. What I would say is for us, we also have very deep relationships with our health system providers that are actually generating the data in the first place. Um, so we have a very focused network that is generating the data and they aren't just generating, they're not just working with us to, to kind of create data. They actually want to use the data in, in practice. And so in addition to generating evidence, we also use insights from the data to support them in caring for their patients. So we also develop insights that help them find patients for clinical trials and that help them uh, support best practice adoption. Um, and we, we enable kind of them to work on those, those concepts as well as to enable our life science partners to kind of help them with that as well. From the SIAP standpoint, the relationship with your data providers is that you're, you know, you're, you're certainly using the data to answer questions for life science partners, but also just directly into feeding back into the care that's being that's being provided there. 
And with IQV, exactly. it would be more that the data is maybe a, a broader set of data with a broader set of, of relationships and different types of data. And it's more that that's the starting kind of the raw material that you would use elsewhere, as opposed to kind of feeding it back to the providers of those that are the source of data in the first place. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. So as the questions come in, then we, you know, then there's this whole process to determine, um, you know, what is the best optimal data source in which to answer that question? You know, what does the question entail? Are, are we going to assess mortality than, you know, identifying the, the right data source that has a strong linkage and capture of, um, you know, mortality within it? And then, you know, from there, do we have all the right variables? Then, you know, can we capture the right patient population within it? Will it be generalizable? Will it make a difference for that um, individual decision maker? Um, and will it be a sufficient size um, so that we can evaluate, you know, the question? And then finally, um, you know, assessing the data quality and completeness of it. Are we following the patients for long enough to answer the question? Um, and even though the database has the variables, are are they well captured? Uh, yeah. And you know, really, um, you know, telling us what we think they're telling us. So. <laughs> Now, this is one of those things where, you know, as I had mentioned, when things were on paper, you couldn't do any of this. But then just because it's electronic doesn't mean that you can actually do all the things that you'd, that you'd want to do with it. And, and if I think about, Jenny, from maybe getting into a little deeper about what you were saying there, you know, if I think about some data like claims data, well, why does the data exist? It's because if somebody needed to get paid for doing something and it's more of a kind of a byproduct that, that this data might be used to track other, other sort of things. But if you didn't need to fill in the information in order to get paid, or if you had certain incentives that wanted, made it so that you wanted to get it paid a certain way, then if you use that data for some other purpose, you know, it might not, it might not be there. You might have to, to at least understand the limitations of it or do some manipulation in order to make it, uh, you know, in order to make it fit for purpose. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's the, uh, a large portion of the, of the challenges in actually getting the data to the place where it can really be analyzed and, trust, and, and give trustworthy answers, right? Um, and so even if you think about the EHR, right, um, it's, it may be the, the system of record, but a lot of times the elements that you need aren't in structured form, even within the EHR. Yeah. You know, they're, they're usually um, in a physician note somewhere, maybe, um, but not always. Um, and, and sometimes they're, you know, the molecular testing might be uploaded as, not, as a PDF somewhere in the system if you search really hard, um, but, but not actually easily accessible. Um, and so it's really, you know, what, what we really focus on is, how do we um, kind of pull together the comprehensive patient record by kind of direct access to the source and really kind of uh, strong emphasis on kind of data quality and completeness um, to be able to then answer those questions um, that, that are difficult to answer through traditional data sets that, that maybe just don't have access to those variables at all, right? Um, so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a journey, I would say, to get the data to where it needs to be. So Jenny, I can see, I know there's plenty of challenges in doing what PsyApps is doing, but when there's the feedback loop that the, those that are producing the data are actually trying to use it for patient care, you can see an easier way to, to see that improvement. What do you do at IQVIA when you're dealing with this broader set of data that may have some of the characteristics like I was, I was saying up front in order to ensure data quality and to look at how do you improve it uh, over time for completeness, accuracy, that kind of thing? 
Yeah, well, it depends on the on the data source, but um, because we have different arrangements, whether we um, you know have data brought in house or we're working with um, various partners who are more closely linked with the um, you know with the health system or clinic. Um, but it's certainly, you know, a, a process and we like to carve out a period of, you know, feasibility to ensure that this is the right set of, um, and it could be more than one data source that you're yeah. using, but, um, you know, allowing enough time to, to be able to demonstrate that, you know, it's not just the patient counts, do we have enough patients in there, but really, um, you know, it, it are the data sufficient to answer this question. Um, so it may be a series of tables to show um, the data quality of the variables, the sensitivity and specificity of key variables that would be used for the analysis. Got it. So one, so I think it's now we see kind of the promise and then some of the challenges of the data sources for real world evidence. I'm interested to hear kind of what's the state of the art today? Because you have wrestled with a lot of the, these things. And as interesting it is to hear about, you know, data cleansing and getting completion of fields and putting the blood pressure in this particular field versus another one, uh, you know, then most people want to know kind of like, what can mm -hmm. I do with it? And I know that we're not at the kind of the ultimate destination now, but what are some of the things over maybe the past couple of years that you could do now and say, hey, here's a real, you know, tangible, valuable use of real world evidence uh, that people might be interested to hear about? So... Maybe I'll start, Alyssa. I've, I've just been thinking about how, where we're headed, given, um, you know, we're, we're seeing these data increasingly used for regulatory decision making, for payers. Now, you know, Alyssa's describing providing it back to the health systems and clinicians um, for, for patient level decision making or formulary decision making. Um, and I'm starting to think, you know, it, you know, we we may see increasing use with parallel analyses, you know, not just demonstrating it in one data source, but are we seeing the same finding in a few different data sources? And we'll give an example of that in a minute. Um, or are are you trying to? This, the second one is. Uh, triangulation. So are you trying to get to a big decision, but no, no single data source is really going to give you that answer. And you need to look in a variety of places and different ways to help inform your decision. Um, and, and we'll come back to that one. And the third is um, augmentation, meaning you need to link data sources together to be able to answer the one question. So not, not repeating it across multiple or parallel analyses, but you need to link to be able to um, evaluate the question. So I think those are three areas I see us heading towards increasingly. And, um, and maybe we can share some examples within those. Um, I'm happy Alyssa, to- Alyssa, do you wanna give your, your perspective and let's talk about a couple of examples. That'd be great. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with anything, everything Jenny said there. I think there's, um, we're, we're kind of trying to figure out how all these data sources are separate, right? And so we're trying to figure out the best way to use 
them in combination or separately to be able to kind of answer the questions that need answering. Um, in terms of the, in terms of, of kind of where else the state of the art is, right? I think there's, there's two levels, right? There's, there's kind of which use cases are you addressing today with real world data? Um, and, and from that standpoint, I think the use cases are opening up. I think we're seeing more on the regulatory realm, for example, but there's other areas in which, in which we're starting to push in terms of how real world data is being used. And then there's also um, kind of the, the types of sources that are being used to answer those questions. And those are evolving over time, right? Um, we're not just getting EHR data that people are moving into, you know, patient generated health data too. Um, there's kind of a, this is sources are expanding um, and that gives us more options, but it also makes more complexity to kind of deal with <laughs> as you have to think about how you put the pieces of the puzzle together. Great. So I'm eager to hear some examples, some case studies, maybe of what you're uh, of what you're doing. Some specific things would be wonderful because I'm starting to say, oh, it sounds awfully difficult. Uh, you know, we can ask some questions. Can we answer them? Uh, can we do we know, if we can answer it? Do we have enough people to answer it? Do we have the data sources, etc. But what are a couple of tangible things that you've uh, that you've done as case studies? Well, um, so for the first one where we're describing the need for parallel analyses, you know. Friends of Cancer Research brought um, many real-world evidence uh, organizations together to, to ask, can we establish a framework that would allow us to operationalize some real-world oncology endpoints? Like, how well can we capture mortality or time to treatment discontinuation in patients, um, in cancer patients? And so... Friends of Cancer, along with um, six and then 10 or more real world evidence organizations came together um, around a question for non-small cell lung cancer patients. And um, through this effort, you know, developed a, a, a common protocol that we all used um, to evaluate time to treatment discontinuation and um, overall mortality amongst patients um, who had advanced non-small lung cancer who were treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So we, I mean, first of all, we all came together and aligned on what question yeah. to look at. Which and was not easy. <laughs> yeah. so we define it and how do we define the outcomes? And, and through that, um, you know, then estimated, um, you know, both of those endpoints and saw similar results, although it varied from data sources, data source, but it was trending. Um, and, and we also compared those results to clinical trials that looked at that same endpoint and, and saw significant overlap um, in, in the results. So, so that got me thinking about how important I think it will be going forward for more questions to to want to see, you know, um, are our findings repeatable or uh, across different data sources? And, and, you know, that was the first of three pilots that Friends of Cancer, they've continued to do this now, uh, get going into more depth. Yeah. Alyssa, was SIAPS one of the six or 10 that was... Uh... That was involved in that from the real world yep. side. Yes, I, I, it seemed as though yeah, you had we some familiarity well. with that. Yeah. How did it look from your perspective? Uh, very much as Denny described. I think um, it was an interesting exercise because everyone 
all the data is collected uh, from sometimes very different sources, right? Different source types. And so uh, depending on how the data, where the data is collected from and how the data is collected, getting to a common set of definitions, a common set of uh, kind of principles until in terms of how you'll do the same analysis takes work, right? It's, it's actually harder than it might seem um, because, you know, at the end of the day, and the FDA guidance has talked about this, you know, you're, you're trying to, to kind of test a clinical concept, right? You're trying to test a certain clinical question. And in any case, any data set that you pick, you have an operational definition for, you know, a particular line of therapy or um, a particular diagnosis. And those will show up in different ways, depending on which data sources you use. Um, and so kind of getting together to kind of get those definitions aligned so that you can do the parallel analysis um, was actually, um, it, it took some time and a lot of effort by the companies involved to really uh, get it right so that the analysis could be done. So there's a reason it doesn't happen all the time, yeah. right? <laughs> because it's it's not as easy as it might seem to, no. to kind of do things in that parallel way. I'm waiting to hear that what the what's easy. I haven't heard it yet, so we'll have to maybe we'll do a part. The field uh, is not easy. A part two, <laughs> Jenny. I want to go back to something that you had said uh, earlier about like, do we have enough patients? Not just the patient counts, and never mind if the data is filled in. But like, I think especially as there's more insight into kind of personalized medicine and individual things, you can't lump so many patients together. And at the same time, you need in order to understand the patients, you need to have like real depth of, of data. Is there a approach? that's used where you use something like PSYAPs or maybe a registry where there's like a lot of data on maybe a relatively small number of patients to come up with a hypothesis and then use like a much wider data set that would cover almost everybody in order to, to test that out further? Is, does that, is that kind of thing done? Because I'm just thinking about the challenge of both having enough kind of deep data about any individual to come up with something meaningful, but then say, well, gee, there's only two patients like this here within this, within this data set and we can't have that same level of data on everybody. Well, you're making me think of this this next one, which is augmentation, meaning okay. you know, we, didn't, we, we didn't we didn't set this up ahead of time, right? So Yeah, right. Okay. But um but there, you know, an example was um Ibrantz, which is a, a medicine that originally approved um a HER2 positive targeted therapy for breast cancer, originally approved for women. But um but Pfizer, the company, wanted to, you know, extend the label to men, and it was very rare um, disease in in men. Um, I think it was 0.1% compared to you know 12.5% in females. So they only had a small subset of males in their clinical trial, uh, and within that subset, showing know, similar efficacy and, and safety. But then they went to, um, to do a couple of different analyses. Like you were describing, David, they used a, a rich EMR data source and only, you know, a small number of male um, HER2 positive breast cancer men, but demonstrated similar safety amongst those men who were taking it since the medicine was approved, but off-label. Um, and then in a larger data set with less, with less um, you know, detailed information, we estimated first the unmet need. How often were males trying to get this um, Ibrantz therapy off-label and, and getting denied? 
how, you know, what was the percentage of claim denials? And then amongst those who were able to access therapy, were they staying on treatment just as long as females were? So not the same, you know, level of detail, but still signaling that those patients receiving this expensive treatment are staying on it. So yeah. something must be working. Um, and so using all of this types of information and analyses, Pfizer um, submitted those data to the FDA and they were able to extend the, the claim to males. So yeah, I think there is a strategy there around what kind of information can help inform you know, the, the bigger decision. Great. I want to uh, maybe ask a final question that is like going out a few years, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever your time frame is, when we've dealt with a lot of the underlying infrastructural issues and solved all the things that actually take all of your time today and say, hey, what's the vision? What are you most excited about that we can do with real world evidence five, 10 years down uh, the road? What might that look like? Yeah, I think um, for me, it's really not just the expansion of use cases, but the integration across use cases, right? So I'm thinking of things like hybrid trial design, right? Um, so today you have randomized controlled trials, and then you also can um, develop evidence with, with real-world data. But, you know, there's great potential to kind of capture real-world data as part of the trial, right? To capture kind of additional components of the patient record, um, either during the trial itself and that kind of a hybrid design, or for long-term follow-up, to follow those same patients after they've completed the trial and uh, and to see what happens to them. Um, there's there's a lot of energy around this, around that, that topic uh, today, and people are kind of trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, you know, I think the, uh, so, so that's just one example, but I think integrating those different kind of uses of verbal data together uh, to be able to actually kind of do things in a more powerful, more effective and efficient way is, is what excites me in terms of how the field is going to evolve. Yeah. How about you, Jenny? Big, big picture, you know, integrating research with practice so that we're always learning. We're building this learning health system where real time, high quality data can inform both our, our personal health decisions as well as policy and regulatory ones, too. Great. I can't I can't, I can't wait, but I'll, I'll have to wait. <laughs> We're not there yet. Yeah, good. So Jenny Christian from IQVIA and Alyssa Winslow-Cotton from SciApps, I want to say thank you very much for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast, sharing your backgrounds, your excitement about real-world evidence, where the field has come, and where it's going. Thank you very much. Thanks so thank much for having me. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare, business, and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.